0: Welcome to Hacking for Cash, an Aspen podcast on state-sponsored campaigns of cyber espionage for commercial gain. My name is Bart Hobove. In this first episode of Hacking for Cash, we're discussing the agreement that US President Barack Obama and Chinese President Xi Jinping reached in September 2015. They agreed that neither the US nor China would conduct or knowingly support cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property including trade secrets or other confidential business information for commercial advantage. In the years leading up to 2015, US businesses and later also the national security community had grown increasingly frustrated and irritated with what they saw as an orchestrated campaign by the Chinese government to deploy their cyber capabilities against American businesses and their intellectual property. Also, US cybersecurity companies like Mandiant, FireEye, published reports on advanced persistent threat actors that were targeting U.S. companies and which were believed to be facilitated by certain governments. Some companies also conceded that they had fallen victim to the theft of valuable and confidential economic data, even though they remained cautious in coming forward in public. Addressing the press at the White House in September 2015, U.S. President Obama said...
1: I raised, once again, our very serious concerns about growing cyber threats to American companies and American citizens. I indicated that it has to stop. The United States government does not engage in cyber economic espionage for commercial gain. And today, I can announce that our two countries have reached a common understanding on the way forward. We've agreed that neither the U.S. or the Chinese government will conduct or knowingly support cyber-enabled CEF theft of intellectual property, including trade secrets or other confidential business information for commercial advantage. In addition, we'll work together and with other nations to promote international rules of the road for appropriate conduct in cyberspace. So this is progress. Uh, But uh, I have to insist that our work is not yet done. I believe we can expand our cooperation in this area, even as the United States We'll continue to use all of the tools at our disposal to protect American companies, citizens and interests.
0: The Obama-Xia agreement laid the foundation for what would later become a norm of responsible state behavior in cyberspace. Unlike other agreed norms, the issue of state-sponsored economic cyber espionage was not addressed through the UN General Assembly, but through the G20, the forum of the world's 20 biggest economies to resolve fair economic competition and international cooperation. In this episode, I speak with Chris Painter. Chris was the U.S. State Department's inaugural coordinator for cyber issues and was deeply involved in preparing the obama Sea Agreement. Before becoming a diplomat, Chris served in the White House at the National Security Council and before that had a long career as a federal prosecutor on some of the most high-profile and significant cybercrime prosecutions in the country. And I speak with Justin Bassey, now the executive director at ASPI, but in a previous role he served as national security advisor to Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull at a time when Australia also reached a bilateral agreement with China not to engage or support cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property for commercial gain. With both of them, I talk about the story behind the agreements their administrations reached with China, the role of presidential and prime ministerial leadership, and the challenges in ensuring that states indeed adhere to their international commitments, in particular their promise to refrain from state-sponsored malicious cyber activities. Chris, we just heard from President Obama when he announced the shared understanding the U.S. and China reached on refraining from cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property for commercial gain. How important did officials at the time, including yourself, believe this bilateral agreement was?
2: Well, it was very significant. It was a long time in the making. For a long time, I think the U.S. had had issues with this essentially wholesale theft of trade secrets, business proprietary information from China, uh, by China. Um, and it it had only recently, uh, during the Obama administration, really wr- risen to a high level of priority. And I think one of the things that was really interesting is that you had, I think, one one for one of the first times, a confluence between the national security community and the economic community to say this is important. The national security community, I think, always felt this is important. The economic community, when they saw trade secrets, uh, intellectual property being stolen, which is really the lifeblood of the future of the economy, uh, also realized this is important. So uh, this agreement was really the culmination of almost two years of high-level, substantial and sustained pressure by the Obama administration from Obama himself, frankly, and every, every official on down. On the Chinese uh, government, that this was a significant issue. This is an issue where we're willing to take uh, friction in the overall U.S.-China relationship, which was significant because that had never happened before. Very complex and many varied relationship that we have with China, or had, especially then. Um, so, it was significant to elevate this issue to that level. And and you know, quite frankly, for a while, it didn't look like any agreement would come. The, the Chinese would flatly deny anything was going on. Uh, The uh, theft of intellectual property would uh, continued unabated. Uh, There were various things that happened during that time, including the indictment uh, by our Justice Department of a number of uh, People's Liberation Army actors who were responsible for this, uh, which also caused the Chinese to cancel dialogues that that I led with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it wasn't clear this would happen. And, And the fact that it happened when Xi was coming to the U.S. for a summit Uh, and I think there was uh, at least the perception of a a threat of economic sanctions against China for this. This was a big deal uh, because this is something that was not just a big deal for the U.S. It was a big deal for Australia, for a number of countries, because we weren't the only victims here. And again, this was something that was seen as not the typical kind of um, uh, espionage that that every country does, but something that uh, we, the U.S. didn't do, other countries we didn't think should do, and it really went to the economic nature of our future. And so I think the fact that we were able to get an agreement really on the eve of the visit by President Xi was seen as very a very significant thing. And if we hadn't, I think that summit would have been very different. I think it was clear that that, that was going to be a major rubbing point and a, a major issue in the future of U.S.-China bilateral relations.
0: As Chris mentioned, this was not only a big deal for the U.S., but also for other countries. The text of the Obama Xi meeting was included in the G20 Leader Statement in November 2015. And the foreign ministers of the G7 countries similarly committed not to sponsor ICT-enabled theft of intellectual property. And a series of bilateral agreements followed between the U.K. and China in October 2015, between Germany and China in June 2016, between Canada and China, and between Australia and China, both in 2017. In 2017, at the conclusion of the Australia-China High-Level Security Dialogue, held in Sydney, Foreign Minister Julie Bishop and Attorney General George Brandis issued a joint statement, together with Secretary Mang Danju, head of the Chinese Communist Party's Central Commission for Political and Legal Affairs. The statement includes a variety of things. And on Cybersecurity Corporation it says... Australia and China reaffirmed their commitment to a peaceful, secure, open and cooperative cyber environment, that they agreed to support the work of the UN groups of governmental experts and to act in accordance with their 2013 and 2015 reports. This means that they accept that international law applies to state conduct in cyberspace and uh, an agreement to a set of 11 norms which, among other things, includes a commitment to prevent the misuse of their own territory for malicious cyber activities, and not to target critical infrastructure in any cyber operations. And thirdly, they agreed to establish a mechanism to share information that would assist in the fight against and prevention of cyber crimes in order to prevent cyber incidents that could create problems between the two states. The final provision talks about economic cyber espionage and reads that, quote, Australia and China agree not to conduct or support cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property, trade secrets or confidential business information, with the intent of obtaining a competitive advantage, end of quote. Justin, you were Prime Minister Turnbull's national security advisor at the time. What can you tell us about the context and story behind Canberra's bilateral agreement with Beijing? Uh, Well,
3: that agreement was signed in April of 2017, but it was in the context of a changing relationship with Beijing behind the scenes. The public expression of the shift (laughs) Would not occur until June 2017 in then Prime Minister Turnbull's speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue. Uh, but there had been a lot happening behind the scenes strategically at the bilateral level. Turnbull came to power in late 2015. I joined his office having a background in cyber security policy and obviously Turnbull was the most tech-savvy politician of the era. Uh, who had a genuine interest in cyber and tech issues. The system by that stage already knew that Beijing was the most significant malicious user of cyberspace, and there were increasing reports of cyber intrusions, IP theft, subsidies, and of course what we would later come to know as foreign interference. We were also talking a lot to allies, and obviously the US had signed... The first IP theft agreement with China in 2015 and later that year in 2015 at the G20 in Turkey, the G20 would sign a norm norm of not using cyberspace to steal IP theft for commercial gain. We had had a massive cyber intrusion into the Bureau of Meteorology. The Department of Parliamentary Services had suffered an intrusion and companies were being hacked and having their IP and trade secrets stolen left, right and centre. Like so many security issues to that point, the instinct from both officials and politicians had largely been to be silent, but that was a strategy proving increasingly ineffective. One of Turnbull's first security strategies on coming to power uh, as Prime Minister, was the cyber security strategy of April 2016, and in launching that, he acknowledged for the first time the intrusions into uh, B- the Bureau of Meteorology (DPS). He also talked about Kmart, Bart, um, and that was the the only company uh, that agreed to be outed as having suffered a cyber intrusion. And Kmart should be very proud of that. Uh, they were the only company who agreed. There were so many others. Uh, and other companies and government agencies were simply too scared to acknowledge what was happening to them behind the scenes. And there was a lot happening. Uh, we were of the view, Bart, leading to that, that the US agreement uh, with uh, with China, the Obama and Xi agreement, uh, had been important, at least in the short term. It brought the issues to the to the fore in a way that they hadn't been previously, and it set a, a clear boundary on what was acceptable and unacceptable Behaviour. And the key was not to use cyber capabilities to steal IP for commercial gain. We all do espionage, but we don't use it to go after commercial targets to give to our industry. And that's been a core part of Beijing's Made in 2025 plan IP theft and tech transfer. There is a an absolute and important difference between country on country spying to determine strategic questions such as uh, nuclear status or how many missiles a particular country has uh, and using cyber capabilities to steal IP or interfere in democratic processes. Uh, and but this leading into uh, the agreement in 2017 was was just in cyberspace. Uh, there was a confluence of security issues happening from 2016, with Beijing's behaviour in South China Sea, concerns over investment in critical infrastructure, its interference in democratic processes, all happening at the same time that there was a growing awareness of Beijing's malicious use of cyberspace. So the context was dawning in Australia that Beijing was using multiple means to undermine our security and sovereignty. And, and crucially, the shift that we were seeing, the context, was finally that Security concerns and threats couldn't be ignored, notwithstanding the economic gain that relationships had to offer. Uh, and The agreement in 2017 but, was uh, one of the necessary actions uh, that needed to take place. It wasn't about immediately shouting from the rooftops and going public all at once, but actually trying to methodically counter and respond to malicious activity in a, in a range of sectors.
0: Justin refers to something we all know but hardly ever say out loud, um, and that is that all states are involved in espionage activities, including in cyber espionage. So how then do you differentiate between accepted or responsible forms of cyber espionage, and where does it become irresponsible or even illegal? And how do you as a country assert in your adversaries or competitors that you're adhering to these boundaries? Chris, I think you briefly hinted at some of the steps that the U.S. government, and in particular, the U.S. intelligence community had taken, and that it was to internally assess whether the U.S. agencies were themselves engaged in any form of economic cyber espionage for commercial intent. And they reached the conclusion, no, we don't, uh, and we won't. And they opted to come out in public and say, the U.S. government is not involved in economic cyber espionage as far as it may benefit a commercial entity or an industry. Is that, is that correct?
2: Yeah, and, and that's it's very important. I mean, the, you, know, you don't want to the, the old phrase of the pot calling the kettle black. You, you don't want to be accused of, uh, of duplicity or, um, uh, you know, uh, doing something that you're doing. And indeed, you know, there was, I think, a very, you know, it was very clear that the U.S. doesn't do this. They don't condone it. Don't, don't do this. You know, yes, every country gathers intelligence uh, to protect their citizens. They, also they have. Also of, you know, of an economic nature well, but but not to benefit their own companies, not to benefit their commercial sector. I mean, you know, I think when you think about it, you know there's a difference between economic general intelligence and economic trade secrets so that you can give a one up to your companies in competing. That's not what the u s does as well what any we we believe any country should do and and that's I think a very important distinction. you know it it doesn't mean, however, that you know you would expect that all espionage would stop after this agreement because it really was grounded on this idea of that kind of economic espionage meant to benefit your commercial sector, which you know we we certainly believe the Chinese were doing, and we thought that you know that's something that no country should do. that was a norm that we thought should be enforced,
0: Justin, did the Australians go through a similar process where they are no Commonwealth agency was using cyber? to conduct a activities for commercial purposes?
3: Yeah, it's, it's a really important question uh, because you don't want to set yourself up to uh, uh, being referred to as hypocritical. You don't want to, to set yourself up to be uh, uh, shown that, well, you, you're trying to claim that someone else is doing something uh, in bad faith, but you very much uh, are doing the same activity. Uh, so, uh,
0: acknowledged. Every country is spying for political, military, and even for economic purposes.
3: That's right. So, so there is a- absolutely spying. Uh, spying uh, has uh, been around forever, uh, and uh, all countries have uh, uh, um, intelligence services. Uh, we have great intelligence services in the Australian Signals Directorate, ASIS. Uh, they do uh, a wonderful job. Uh, what? Uh, we need to separate uh, is uh, the uh, the what their services are used for. and as I said, there is a an absolute important distinction between uh, using your intelligence services and your cyber capabilities to determine uh, a country, whether a country is developing nuclear weapons or not, uh, and using those capabilities to steal trade secrets to give to your companies, to give them an unfair uh, competitive advantage.
0: The underlying threat in these conversations is that acts of cyber espionage are generally accepted as state practice. But there where it affects businesses, business interests, or a nation's ability to innovate, the practice crosses a red line. In other words, using state cyber capabilities to steal intellectual property, and then hand that over to domestic industries, cannot be accepted nor supported. An essential element in any international agreement is is the domestic context. When we're talking about economic cyber-espionage, it tends to revolve around three areas. There is the national security element, the issue of state-on-state malicious cyber activities. There is the cyber security element, where the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of essential ICT systems are intentionally and systematically compromised. And there is the economic or knowledge security component, where the ability to do international business in the context of fair competition is undermined, or where international partnerships and research and development and innovation are misused to misappropriate intellectual property. Within governments, these dimensions are represented by different portfolios, different departments, and they often have quite diverging views on the world, have different appreciations of risks and priorities, and don't always sing from the same song sheet. Chris, within the U.S. system, how did you, from a State Department role, manage to get all ducks in a row and onto the same page?
2: Well, within the, the domestic community, as I said, you know, th- this is not a new thing. The national security community and the economic community don't often talk well together. They don't—they don't have the same language on things. So they don't necessarily prioritize the same things, and that was, you know, doubly true with cyber activity. That you know, uh, you know, I think traditionally you think of the economic community about, you know, thinking about innovation, which is important, thinking about growth, but not thinking about the security issues and not prioritizing them, where the, you know, the security community would be the opposite. They prioritize the security issues. And to some extent, I always used to say the economic community thought that the security community was like trying to hold them back. And the security community thought the economic community was out of their minds. They were just going too far or too fast without thinking about these security things. And that, you know, I think that was largely true for a long time. But When this threat was seen as not just, as I said, a national security threat, but an economic threat, I think that brought those communities together. In the White House, in the context of the White House, you have the National Security Council and you have the National Economic Council. And they really, I think, made common cause and said, this is a big deal. Uh, we were hearing from companies, as you said earlier in the introduction, the companies may not have wanted to be the front face of this and be out in public on it. However, they certainly were concerned as a group about how this would affect their futures, and, and certainly Congress and others were too. So this really matured, I think, as is an issue where you got these previously disparate communities coming together and, and thinking how important it is. Now, with the Chinese, you know, I think once this was phrased, and this is the important thing to me, it's not just a cyber issue, but it's part of the overall U.S.-China relationship, that this was something that was so important, and that President Obama said that when he saw President Xi in Sunnylands, uh, that this is so important that we were willing to take friction in the overall, the very large, overall, complex U.S.-China relationship. This was something that he was going to prioritize. And, and quite frankly, look, you know, I I can't speak for President Xi, I don't know what he was thinking at the time, but my sense is, that, it, that kind of caught them by surprise, that they were like, well, what, what's this cyber issue doing here? Why is this assumed such great importance? Um, and that was really, I think, a, a major thing, to for the first time, prioritizing the cyber issue as something that was important to the U.S., as something that vital to the U.S., and something we were willing to take that overall friction. So the common ground, I think, between the U.S. and China, although it took a while to get there, was, you know, was really the overall relationship, that, that uh, that you know, if it was just about a cyber issue, it was just about an intellectual property issue, I'm not sure we would have made progress. But one, it was about the overall U.S.-China relationship, and it was on the eve of a summit, a very important summit for both sides that was taking place in Washington, where I think the Chinese view is they wanted that to go smoothly. They wanted that to be a positive summit, and this is a very negative story because the U.S. is very concerned about this. Uh, that, that that really, I think, galvanized them to come to the table and say that they were willing to you know, reach an agreement for a long time that they wouldn't. I, I'd say, Bart, that for really the better part of that time, they would deny that any of this happened. You know, yeah. I don't really care if they deny or not deny it. I just want them to stop it. Uh, but they uh, But on the other hand, they would also say there was no distinction between the kind of intelligence gathering every country does and has done since the beginning of time and this intellectual property uh, stuff, that there's no difference, and there was just the U.S. making this difference. And it was significant that they changed their view on that on the eve of the summit and reached this agreement. And I think the common ground really went to that overall U.S.-China relationship, uh, which was, you know, well beyond just the cyber or intellectual property issues. And and indeed, I think, you you know, I know we'll talk about this later, but I think that when that relationship, that overall relationship deteriorated, that also affected the, the strength and, and longevity of that agreement. Both the
0: U.S. and Australian agreements with China to refrain from economic cyber espionage for commercial purposes were reached in the context of what were to become regular dialogues. The U.S.-China strategic and economic dialogue that ran between 2009 and 2016 and the Australia-China high-level security dialogue. Not only were these dialogues a means to establish clear boundaries of of accepted behavior, but they also served as a confidence-building activity between different states. They are a place to explain the different political, security, and economic systems in both countries and establish a degree of understanding. For instance, such a conversation could start by one state acknowledging that there are cybersecurity issues affecting the other state, and that state A accepts that certain malicious activities are originating from their territory and therefore that they carry a responsibility to prevent that from happening in future. At least that it should make an effort to that effect. Justin? The
3: uh, the issue was uh, that we have to recognise that the Chinese system and our system have significant starting point differences. We're, we've got a different political system. And so if we don't explain to Beijing uh, what we believe is acceptable and unacceptable behaviour... We can't really expect them to uh, to understand it. And so uh, what we saw as an advantage of the first agreement in 2015 with the US uh, was that there was a boundary set. And from that point, Beijing couldn't say that, oh, uh, we, we don't see a difference between Uh, using your cyber capabilities to um, gain strategic advantage or gain an understanding of a rival's strategic status uh, versus uh, using it to prop up your commercial industry. Uh, And uh, we needed to make it clear that that was a very important distinction. Yes, we all do espionage, but we don't prop up our commercial industry by stealing IP and trade secrets. So the, the issue... Uh, for us was, uh, was this going to be limited to uh, a US-China issue? Mm -hmm. And uh, importantly, like so many issues, it only favours Beijing if the rest of the world uh, tries to uh, imply that all security issues globally can be limited to US and China. Uh, IP theft, cyber intrusions, interference, they affect all countries and therefore we all have a role to play. And so it was important that the G20 uh, include the norm, sign up the norm, and we believe that given what was happening behind the scenes to Australia, both uh, in government uh, and the private sector, uh, that we needed to set our boundaries and explain to Beijing what was acceptable and unacceptable. And what that meant was that, uh, that from that point in time, If Beijing was caught uh, using cyber capabilities to steal IP, trade secrets, then we could uh, respond and say, well, you know what you're doing is wrong because you've actually written a signed document that says you know it would be wrong. And that's what then led to a series of attributions from 2016 uh, in relation to Russia, Iran, North Korea, and then finally China at the back end of 2018.
0: If we accept that there was an intent to follow international agreements and take their word, was there anything that the Chinese side at the time was able to explain about how their system worked and why we and many other economies were facing these cyber intrusions?
3: No, it probably uh, reflects that we weren't able to get to that level of conversation, but because the starting point, uh, middle point and end point from a Beijing perspective is that they never ever uh, uh, admitted anything. So they uh, they were adamant that A, uh, they don't use cyberspace for such malicious purposes uh, and B, without admitting it, uh, that they don't do anything different to other countries. Uh, And so uh, when that's the starting point, it makes that type of conversation to go in depth uh, more difficult. But that's why uh, as much as uh, um, the long-term behavioural change hasn't eventuated. Uh, the agreements that were being signed were were really important to to ensure that nobody could say that Beijing wasn't aware of what the acceptable and unacceptable behaviour uh, was and, and where the distinction was. Uh, so, so uh, in in signing those agreements, uh, they've acknowledged that they understand it, uh, and that's where then. Uh, that then allows future attributions to take place when we identify that, uh, that behaviour. But then, no, there was, never, there was never any acknowledgement, any ad- ad- admission, even at the 2018 attribution. Of course, it was, uh, the, um, the response was that uh, this was Cold War mentality, uh, that this was a US-led gang up against uh, China um, and was solely based on trying to constrain uh, Beijing, not based on any actual malicious activity.
0: While none of this is straightforward, reaching international agreement about a common commitment, especially when it's non-binding and voluntary, is relatively, and I stress relatively, easy. But when it comes to, for lack of a better word, observing or ensuring adherence to international norms, that's a whole different story. In the immediate aftermath of the 2015 agreement, some people within the US intelligence community held diverging opinions. Some statements suggested that the economic cyber speed had continued unabated, while others suggested that it's continued, but in a significantly lower volume. Chris, how do you look at how the agreement progressed after it was signed, after it was agreed, and where are current challenges in ensuring compliance?
2: Yeah, so first I'll start that it was very significant to get that as a G20 statement as well. I mean, hmm. you're right. Comparatively, enforcement is harder than reaching agreement. Reaching agreement was not that easy either. I mean, you know, like I said, it took about over I mean, almost uh, two years of sustained, high-level sustained. And this is something that governments don't often do well, sustained uh, pressure from the highest level saying this is an important issue. Um, so, And then the G20 agreement, you know, you have to cook a G20 agreement sometimes years before they happen. This happened in a space of less than six months. So that was significant. And include all the G20 countries. So, so getting that I think was significant. Now, you know, this is this also carries over to the norms that we're talking about in the UN setting the political the kind of political military norms about not attacking attacking infrastructures and others. You know, rules and norms and agreements are only as good as their uh, their accountability and their enforcement. Um, and we made clear the U.S. made clear that simply by reaching this agreement did not mean we were taking things off the table, that we still had the, you know, the option to, to uh, take action if this agreement wasn't being honored. Um, and that's a very complex thing because you have to monitor you to see if it's being done or not. Now I think that there was a significant diminution in this activity, not a stop. And I don't think anyone predicted this would stop. I mean, this is, you know, the, the, these are big countries. There's lots of moving parts. And I don't think anyone thought this would uh, end entirely. But you look at some of the public source stuff that's out there, like the CrowdStrike reports and others that saw, uh, you know, they observed a significant ammunition. Uh, and so I do think that had that was a direct result of this agreement. Now, you could also argue some of it was, you know, uh, the, uh, the actors uh, using better TTPs going underground a bit. There's, you know, certainly espionage writ large like traditional espionage did not decline didn't expect it to from this agreement certainly i mean they're not you know, you're not going you're not going to reach an agreement with another country saying you're not going to spy on each other it's not going to happen with with china and the us or really anybody. You know. yeah so i mean you know so you're not you wouldn't expect that to happen but you did see i think a, a significant change and and you know the chinese um, you know, they were worried about economic sanctions, which we still had in our pocket; we still could use. They were worried about uh, what they, you know, the public, uh, the public outing of their activity. That's certainly, certainly worried that you know they cared about soft power in the world too. Uh, so, I think it did have an effect. Now, the problem is um, that long term, and you know, and that's why I said I draw the the parallels of the norms. You have to, you have to be ready to enforce those agreements. You have to be able to call out. Violations, and you have to be ready to take action when you see them, uh, and that has to be consistent and long term. But as I said earlier, this agreement was routed, uh, rooted, I think, in this uh, Chinese wish to have a better overall U.S.-Chinese relationship and not have this be a thorn in it. And when that overall relationship started deteriorating, particularly under President Trump. I think that they had no real incentive to uh, to abide by this agreement anymore because if that was their motivating factor, if we presuppose that was the case, then there was no reason for them to do this. And indeed, we saw that level of intellectual property theft uh, kind of you know uh, rebound uh, quite a bit. In fact,
0: at Aspi, we established that between 2015 and 2022, the number of cases quadrupled, and above all, that more entities in emerging economies were affected And targeted. These entities include businesses, industries, universities, etc., whose intellectual property was misappropriated through a variety of cyber intrusions and exploitation of ICT vulnerabilities. From a government perspective, one step in addressing this phenomenon is the ability to detect and monitor what's happening in cyberspace on your territory. That's where we see a crucial role for national CERTs, Computer Emergency Response Teams, and National Cybersecurity Centres. But as a next step, there are two avenues to pursue, nationally in strengthening cybersecurity across the economy, in particular of critical infrastructure and those entities relevant to your economy, those who hold most relevant IP. And at the international and diplomatic level, where we see an effort to attribute campaigns to states, sometimes done publicly, sometimes privately, where we call on their state responsibility to protect and prevent. One such joint international attribution was done in 2018 when the UK and others held APT-10 responsible for a cyber espionage campaign against managed service providers, MSPs, with the aim of, quote, intellectual property and commercially sensitive information of the MSPs and their clients, end of quote. APT-10 is assessed to have an enduring relationship with China's Ministry of State Security in support of China's state requirements. Justin, you wanted to say a bit more about this joint attribution.
3: Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, yeah, at the end of 2018, 13 countries joined together to call out Beijing's IP theft and but it really was a significant moment. The the 13 countries are coming together uh, telling the world that Beijing had undertaken a global campaign of cyber-enabled commercial IP theft. To me, it was uh, the system working. Uh, we had begun to establish ground rules, whether it be the, the US agreement, the UK agreement, the Australia agreement, the G20 norm. Uh, it was uh, and and it, vital to set those uh, ground rules uh, because by the end of 2018... Beijing couldn't say that they didn't understand the difference or the distinction. Uh, And by that point, we were able to point clearly to Beijing's malicious activities. Uh, As uh, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, said at the time of the attribution, that we welcome fair competition. We cannot and will not tolerate illegal hacking, stealing or cheating. And that's exactly right. This is activity, uh, it's an activity that really impacts uh, the economy impacts companies, their bottom line. Uh, and so for the December 2018 attribution uh, to, to out Beijing for a multiple year, I think a 12-year campaign of cyber intrusions that was stealing technology and trade secrets across multiple countries, affecting almost every major global industry from finance to telecommunications to space and aeronautics. Uh, and it it really shouldn't have come as much as a surprise, as it seemed at the time. Beijing had told us in 2015 that they had their Made in 2025 plan, Made in China 2025 plan, which aimed to supplant the US as the global leader in advanced technologies, including AI, robotics, and quantum. And, of course, that was 2015. Were, were any Western leaders seriously discussing these topics in 2015, the way Beijing was? No. Um, but uh, for their attribution in 2018... To have come off the back of those agreements, in my view, was important. Uh, I'm, I'm a supporter of attribution. And so, Bart, uh, you've been in many conversations uh, around debate about attribution. And, and there are many commentators uh, who argue that attribution has failed or attribution is a failed policy. That in my view, uh, that's a misjudgment. Uh, it isn't attribution as a policy that's failed, it's, it's the implementation. We are woeful when it comes to consistency, uh, and we need to be able to show that there are actual consequences for a state uh, using cyberspace in this malicious way. But if we don't uh, do that, if we we don't attribute publicly, if we don't show there are consequences, how can we actually disrupt the model? And I think we were on a pathway in 2018 to disrupting that model, but our inconsistency in implementation has meant that we haven't followed through.
0: Let's talk a bit more about what governments can do at home. What can they do to boost resilience against cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property conducted by foreign states? In fact, what seems to be making IP theft in the digital world particularly challenging is the fact that the effects are largely invisible. You will only notice that your designs or innovations were stolen when they appear on the market from a competitor only in due time. Also, other cybersecurity issues that have a direct direct disruptive effect, such as crime and ransomware, seems to get the immediate political and corporate attention. Now, I think in the US, there was a sort of wake up call when the director of the NSA, General Keith Alexander, came out at a public event where he said that the loss of industrial information and intellectual property through cyber espionage constitutes what what he calls the greatest transfer of wealth in history. Chris, how instrumental was this public call-out in getting things moving in the U.S. system and making people aware?
2: Yeah, I mean, General Alexander wasn't the first person that said this was a problem. Certainly, I think there was recognition this was a problem for years. I think that he was very vocal in saying it. And whether that was hyperbole or not doesn't really matter. I think it was clear that there was a huge amount of loss happening. And that loss was often hard to really... Quantify because you're not going to actually see, you know, if someone steals your trade secrets and intellectual property. You're not going to notice it. It's not like a ransomware attack, right, where you have disruption. You're not going to notice it in a month. You may not notice it for three years until someone starts coming out with competing products that undercut all the research and development you've done. Um, so that makes it a little harder to measure that loss. But I, I do really agree that this is a major, major issue because of that you know, that long-term effect it could have, that long-term economic effect it could have. And and look, although the U.S. was clearly a target, as was Australia, um, developing economies are not immune to this either. And indeed, developing economies are trying to develop their economies, you know, more than ever in the digital domain and trying to innovate in the digital domain. And if, if there is theft of that, Life's blood of their economy, if they're now transforming themselves into digital economies, or at least if that's one vector for them to make progress, that's a big deal. Um, So I think you're right that a lot didn't recognize that that was the case because it wasn't as visible, but it had a long term insidious effect. And so I think it was something that every country should be worried about and should be concerned about.
0: This is one of those first steps that's essential for any form of action. That is, that claims of state sponsored Espionage are first and foremostly acknowledged and recognised. You first have to see it before you can recognise it. Justin,
3: leadership is is vital, and uh, you're right that the uh, the agreement that uh, you noted at the beginning of the pod was signed by the foreign minister and the attorney, but that was uh, that was in relation to a uh, an existing dialogue of. Their counterpart, so it was in the context of an existing dialogue between the foreign minister and the attorney and their counterpart. Obviously, as you say, Secretary Mung, but uh, importantly, uh, this was an agreement, and this uh, the specific words in relation to IP theft was a leadership level issue that it wouldn't have happened without uh, the then prime minister noting it as one of his priorities. And one of the reasons that it happened uh, in April 2017 was because it was around the visit of Premier Lee. Uh, so uh, in the uh, meeting between Prime Minister Turnbull and Premier Lee, uh, then Prime Minister Turnbull made it clear that cyber uh, was a priority. So uh, leadership matters, uh Frankly, if it had been left to officials, the lines on IP theft would not have been included in the overall agreement. A lot of the the rest of the agreement uh, around cybercrime would have been there. But the strategic element around separating uh, using cyber capabilities and using them for IP theft would not have been in there uh, unless it had been clear that it was a prime ministerial priority. And uh, you're right, it had come off the back of the US agreement, uh, and then from memory, uh, as we were finishing our negotiations, the UK had also signed a similar agreement. Uh, But leadership, Bart, in these circumstances uh, matters greatly because these issues can and do impact relationships. Most leaders don't really want to have to discuss tensions with their counterparts, and ideally, most tensions are sorted before the leaders meet. The diplomatic art for officials is to work out what they can deal with at lower levels, but also what needs to be raised to leaders. And this was an example of an issue that wouldn't have happened without the Prime Minister's direct involvement. Did Beijing like it? No. They accepted. Yes. And it has set a clear boundary, as I said, on what was acceptable and what was unacceptable.
0: Justin and Chris spoke about the role President Obama in the U.S. and Prime Minister Turnbull in Australia played in making state-sponsored cyber operations targeting industry chef a thorn in the eye for the political leadership. But there's more that can and probably needs to be done in defending economies from cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property. Chris.
2: So I, I say there are two things. One, you know, this is an important threat. This is the theft threat versus the disruption threat. But... You know, from, uh, from a government perspective, it's prioritizing cyber overall, it's prioritizing cybersecurity, having national strategies, having institutions like certs, et cetera. Those are critically important. Not every country has that. Capacity building is a key part of that around the world. And, and you know, that's something where there's a lot of work to be done. Certainly Australia and the U.S. and other developed countries have, or who have been focused on this for a long time have that. But having that is a real no kidding priority, not one of like a thousand priorities, but one that's really important. The second is, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats, making sure you have good cybersecurity hygiene and practices when you're a company, when you're someone who has intellectual property, uh, when you're trying to protect your crown jewels. There's a lot you can do. And, you know, I think my experience has been at the CEO or C-suite level of a lot of companies, they don't really understand cyber until recently. It's become much more of an issue in the last few years. I mean, I'm heartened to see... Finally, cybersecurity becoming like a front-of-line issue for companies, for governments, and others. But we can't take our eye off the ball. Um, you know, this has been my view on ransomware too. We're not going to solve this issue overnight. This is not going to be you take one action and you can protect yourself. This is going to require sustained attention, priority, and a lot of defensive action and policy uh, to you know not just protect ourselves within our countries but also make clear to those who are trying to do these actions that it's unacceptable. And that requires collective action as well. So it's a complicated issue, but it requires, again, something that is not just an overnight uh, uh, fix, but a sustained effort. And sometimes governments are not great at sustained efforts, Bart, uh, but this is something we really need to do and and do well. I've been heartened again to see in the ransomware context that uh, that's happening with the U.S. and Australia and others in that collective But we need to make sure we don't take our eye off the ball with respect to this issue too, because it does have long-term economic consequences, as I said in the beginning.
0: Chris points to the responsibility CEOs and their corporate board have to properly assess and identify their cybersecurity risk profile and then take corresponding measures. He also refers to a slowly but gradually emerging practice where government is able to be in there for the long haul. Justin, in Australia, the government started to prioritize cybersecurity from 2016 onwards with the first national strategy. Uh, back then, a cabinet level ministerial role was assigned, which later disappeared and then reappeared under the current government. The position of special advisor on cybersecurity to the prime minister was created, which also disappeared. And there is the role of an ambassador for cyber affairs, which has continued with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade.
3: In terms of um, here in Australia and looking forward, uh, overall, re-establishing the cyber uh, minister role, Bart, uh, and elevating it to cabinet level was was really an, uh, an excellent and important decision. It was a mistake by the previous Morrison government to discontinue the role. This issue needs leadership, but it can't be the prime minister doing it on a day-to-day basis. The prime minister is simply too busy. It also takes consistency, which I think we've mentioned a couple of times, both in private and in public. Cyber can't be one of those issues left merely to officials to deal with uh, or to uh, simply add in uh, as an afterthought to a communique uh, or a report. The Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister, the Defence Minister, Trade Minister, Home Affairs Minister, they they all need to refer to cyber in their respective meetings as being uh, an Australian priority. Uh, Again, if, if, if we don't mention it, if they don't mention it, why would a system like the Chinese system actually think they need to be concerned about it? And uh, publicly on, on attributions, we can't do what we've done over the past few years and say, well, we attributed back in 2018, uh, we've done it once, therefore, uh, let's let's not do it again for, for a little while. It, it shouldn't be a timing-led issue. It's got to be an activity-led issue. While, while Beijing doesn't like it, of course, they actually respect that type of consistency. Uh, otherwise, it, um, they see themselves doing the same activity, and they don't really understand why uh, some years they get called out and some years they don't. So uh, attribution should be done, in my view, and that can be done at officials' uh, level. We, we, we tend to, in this space, but uh, uh, use certainty or, or a lack of certainty uh, as a reason not to to attribute. Uh, and uh, I think uh, certainty to a to 100% uh, level is too high a bar. Uh, and there are options between being completely silent uh, and then going out and accusing a state of malicious activity. Uh, and it's that middle ground that oft- we often don't use enough. I think we should be uh, using the cybersecurity strategy uh, to be re looking at our protocols. Uh, and uh, saying, okay, uh, where we don't have certainty, do we still have a high probability uh, that we know who the culprit is or where the source uh, was? Uh, And if we think that an intrusion was carried out using the infrastructure of a state, uh, then let's tell the public that's what we think, uh, without having to accuse the state. And in fact, we could put the pressure on that state by saying, we have evidence that it's come from your state or your infrastructure is being used, so what are you going to do about it to try and rectify it? Um, uh, the uh, the last cyber strategy was really done in twenty sixteen. There was an update in twenty twenty. Uh, my view is there can't just be updates in this area. That technology is developing at such a rapid pace that it means that our strategies also need to have uh, a more uh, more of a revolution than just an, an evolution every few years. Uh, and as I said before, I, I'd I'd like to see attribution and policy on attribution. Uh, specifically referred to in the cyber security strategy. Uh, I I believe attribution is important. It's not attribution as a policy that's failed. It's it's a lack of consistency, a lack of enforcement. So it can't just also be about attribution. It's then a so what. Uh, And without both the attribution and enforcement, then you don't have deterrence. Of course, uh, you're going to displease countries uh, when you uh, uh, when you say things uh, in these these areas, but uh, diplomacy, Bart, shouldn't be about ignoring those tough issues. Our diplomats should be trained to manage those situations. Too often, the recommendation is not to do something. Instead, we should be saying, let's do something, and we have the diplomats in place who can uh, mitigate the fallout. Otherwise, what we'll find is that countries like uh, China, like Russia, Uh, will continue to carry on abusing us through cyberspace uh, and they will bank on us being too nervous to say or do anything.
0: Justin, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights behind the US-China agreement to refrain from cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property and the subsequent statement that was issued by Australia and China together. In our report that we published last year on the issue of cyber-enabled IP theft, we looked at the current state of play. And we deliberately call it a persistent and invisible threat, which I think, as you alluded to, is very much the case. It's persistent, and it also requires a sustained effort from governments over a long period of time, as well as industry, to address it. But I think what's also good to realize is that there are opportunities to improve things and to make our innovation, our knowledge ecosystem stronger and more resilient. I think that starts at home by doing our homework, understanding our, our national risk profile, determine which sectors of our economy are most at risk, what are the crown jewels of the economy, if you will, and look at how governments can support these stakeholders in lifting their resilience. And then at the international diplomatic level, there is the G20 agreement, the G20 norm, even though we see a continued violation of the commitment to refrain from economic cyber spinos for commercial gain.
2: Yeah, I should say that that agreement has not gone away, even though there's not as much compliance. You know, we need to be better at enforcing those agreements. And, and look, I'm, as a recovering lawyer, uh, even as a recovering lawyer, I'm more class half full kind of person. I, I'm optimistic we can get there.
3: So Australia, yes, uh, uh, making sure that we are doing everything possible to protect our own economy uh, and strengthen our own security. Uh, but the more that we can do to work with our partners to continue to make this issue uh, of malicious use of cyberspace, including for IP theft an international issue, the better for all of us.
0: We just listened to Chris Painter, uh, who talked about the background to the US-China agreement on uh, cyber-enabled theft of IP. And Justin Bassi, who is now the Executive Director of ASPE, but in a previous life served as the National Security Advisor to Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And in that capacity, he was involved in the high-level security dialogue with China that took place in April 2017.
3: Justin. If I could say, it is really excellent that you were able to speak with Chris Painter. As you say, he had such an impact on the development of cyber policy across so many areas in the US. Uh, But not only in the US, Chris has had global impact uh, and had a significant impact on the development of cyber policy here in Australia. So I'm very pleased that you're able to enjoy a good discussion with him.
0: This concludes this episode of Hacking for Cash, an ASPE podcast on state-sponsored campaigns of cyber espionage for commercial gain. My thanks to Chris Painter and to Justin Bassi for sharing their insights. In our next episode, we'll look at the organizations and the people behind cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property. We'll talk about who are the APTs, the Advanced Persistent Threats, uh, and we we'll talk about who they're targeting and where they're from.